Hello and welcome to the 50th, the landmark 50th Shut Up and Sit Down podcast. A podcast all about board games and table games and games like that made of cardboard or plastic or wood that you can play in your own home, on your own table or floor or occasionally in bed if they're cards or uh, with other friends in their houses if they let you in with their consent. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes my, my wife is like, oh, yeah, we can play this game, but, you know, let's just play it in bed where we're cozy. And I'm like, no. That's not a bad idea. I'm no fun, man. I don't like doing anything in bed. Literally nothing. There's nothing I like to do in bed. My wow. name's Quentin Smith, and I am talking to Paul Dean, Shut Up and Sit Down's Canadian correspondent. Five years, 50 podcasts, Paul. Do you remember back in the day when we were just a couple of English boys wearing costumes and reviewing board games? How times have changed. Yeah, now we're a couple of English boys wearing costumes and reviewing board games. Exactly. A it's world fine. of difference. It's fine. Uh, today, today it, it, some definition of fine, it is fine. Uh, we're going to talk a bit about some games we've been playing recently, like the new Final Fantasy trading card game, Tyrants of the Underdark, and Spyfall 2. But most of this podcast... And we've also got uh, Reader Mail, and we've also got a folk game. But aside from all that, most of our podcast will be discussing our top five games of 2016. Yeah. Ooh. Are you excited? I don't know how to feel, man. I my, I sat down to make the list and <laughs> really surprised myself with my choices, actually. And uh, I think I surprised you and Matt in the Slack channel as both of you heard my number one game and went, what? I, um, uh, yeah, we're going to talk about this. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to dropping that on our unsuspecting audience like a, like a, a card game bomb. So do we um, start with these or do we start with a couple of other games we've been playing first? Do we sort of I whet think- people's appetites? Yeah, I think we build up to our top fives uh, by talking about some games that are not our top fives, but still pretty good. Paul, I've heard you've been being a tyrant of the Underdark. Right. So this is a D&D board game about being a drow, which is a word that drow, 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 that I don't get drow, to say very much in everyday conversation. It doesn't come up much. Um you play, you've got up to four players, and you each of you controls like a, a house in the Underdark, and the Underdark is this big underground part of the fantasy world of uh, Forgotten Realms, which is a Dungeons & Dragons sort of sub-universe. You're and losing you're, me, you're losing I, me. I know, I just realised I'm throwing everyone in at the deep end. Uh, and you're trying to build up your house's influence by basically controlling areas of the board. It's... Uh, like El Grande, it's kind of like an area control game where you just, one of your main choices is do I try and have lots of presence in certain areas to score lots of points or do I spread myself thin to try and have presence everywhere and score points that way. But it's also a deck building game, a bit like something like Dominion or so many other things nowadays where your forces are represented by cards and you buy more cards each turn that make you more powerful and let you do more things. Initially... I got this outside, outside, I got mm-hmm. this out of the box a few weeks ago and I had a brief look at it. You got um, it outside of the box. Outside of the That's, box. I've always said that that is step one to a successful board game Any successful experience. game. And I, I looked at it and I, I put it to one side because I had other things to play and it, it worked its way down the pile and I thought I'm not that excited about this. And it's very, it has it's, that, um, that, sorry to interrupt, no. but it has that, that WizKids um, manufacturing where everything feels quite cheap, right? I mean, even looking at photos, I could tell it didn't look yeah. particularly luxurious. So here's the thing. It, um, like I, it comes with some tokens and figure, like plastic pieces and things, which are all quite good. But the board itself is very brown and purple. And sure. then a lot of the cards are very brown and purple. And it's a bit like... When I used to play like old, old video games in the early 90s or something and I'd have a PC and there'd be different graphics options. Like, do you want EGA graphics? It has 16 different colors. And you could have like 16 colors of like red, white, black, blue. Or if you're a clever artist, you're like, oh, well, you know, I'm going to have black and white, but then I'm going to have 10 different shades of purple for for the palette. Oh, And it's kind of like that. It feels like they only had a limited number of colors and so they went, they... They went to sort of this corner of the spectrum, and it doesn't. 
Like, it looks okay, but it feels... You, you showed me a photo where, it, like, it might have been the light of the photo, but it was like it a was, black board with yeah. black pieces on it. Yeah, I mean, like, playing it in the evening, if you're playing in an area that's not well lit and you have, like, the black player and the dark blue player <laughs> and then the black and purple board, it shoots itself in the foot a bit. But the actual game underneath is pretty good. It oh, works really? quite nicely. You build up this deck of, of drow forces, which are, like agents and assassins and they help you deploy your forces around the board and ideally you want to every turn you have you want to have an efficient as turn as possible so you want to be able to buy cards that allow you to drop troops say on the board quicker than the standard cost of dropping a troop like if you have a card that's replace an enemy troop with one of your own that's way more efficient than just spending resources to plop a new troop down Mm -hmm. um and that it's got a very cool mechanic whereby you're constantly building this deck, but you can also retire cards out of your deck. You basically put them in, like, your throne room, and that represents you promoting these agents to, like, your inner circle, your best friends. But when you put them in there... Um, your best friends? Yeah. They, you they, wouldn't last ten seconds in the cutthroat world I of wouldn't. the draw. <laughs> I would not. Uh, but I, I did quite well in the game. Thanks very much. Um, oh, Nice. But these cards have have different point values, and they have a basic point value if they're in your deck at the end of the game. But if you take them out of your deck and you put them in the throne room, they score you even more points. The disadvantage there being that you can't play them anymore because they're not in your deck. So it's the equivalent Mm. of like for for something like Netrunner having a couple of really cool cards in your deck and saying, uh, I want extra points at the end. It's not at all, forget the Netrunner analogy, it's awful. (laughs) But I like it. I like the idea that you clean out your deck for possibly more points at the end of the game, but then you lose all the abilities of those agents. You basically, you know, you bank those cards. That is slightly more interesting than the Dominion thing of, you know, everyone builds this smooth engine that that has, you buy the card that gives you the special power, use the special power to take two turns in a row, but ultimately you win Dominion by filling your card with victory point cards that do nothing. So it's like you build this really cool car and then just strap well victory points to it until it can't even run anymore but hopefully you've timed that okay so that you didn't do that too early yeah there's a similar thing in tyrants where the timing is very much like oh the game might be ending soon because i've nearly deployed all my forces all this thing has nearly happened so i'm not going to play any of my cards this turn i'm just going to put them all into my treasury just you know panic dump everyone like pushing all these men into this room like get in there quickly pushing your dragon into the room pushing your assassins into the room i love a good panic dump that's what i love paul i'm gonna ask you a hardball question Uh imagine me as like the pitcher with the steely eyes and i'm winding up and i throw the question at you and the question is what is the coolest card in tyrants (gasps) of the underdark oh i might be there's a couple of relatively simple cards that like red wizards of thay or something and there's going to be <laughs> so many drag D people are going to be really excited to hear this but they they uh they basically just allow you to drop spies around the board and spies by themselves do very little but they count as a way to deploy forces where you don't have forces um and they can't be they can't be killed they can be removed but they can't actually be destroyed by the by your opponents destroying like your other units scores your opponent's points but you can just plop a spy like anywhere on the board and it's like putting down a seed out of which a whole army can grow which oh, is that's a quite nice satisfying. way of, of like you you're never 100 percent safe there's always the possibility that someone will drop a spy in an area that you think you've got total control of and then they'll play some card that like uh subsumes one of your troops for one of their and suddenly you've got this growth of sprouting out the ground where they shouldn't be. Um, I think that's the balance you have to strike with area control games. Yeah. Um, I think about ones that have satisfied me a little less, um, games like Mission Red Planet or ooh, Small World, whereby uh, if you have to be able to get attached to areas, you have to invest emotionally and economically in an area, and when area control games don't do that well, it's sort of uh, this situation where I will put a... a guy in a a best friend in a region and then you put a best friend in a region and neither of us have enjoyed that exchange but if you allow players to um uh put up sort of not walls necessarily or yeah maybe literally walls or uh sort of protect their investments and or that you just have your opponents have to pay a cost to come into an area where you are i think that's what makes a really strong area control game 
Yeah, there's the the thing of whether you double down on something or not, or whether you sort of fortify, because it's more value to someone else if they can break into something that you thought that you hold, you know, that you held very strongly. Do you think you're going to give it the full uh, Dark Elven review treatment? I might. I might actually do a video of this come next year because I cool. um, I was pleasantly surprised by it and I want to play it again and I'm still thinking about it and I, I did not expect that. I, I wish it looked a bit nice and it was a bit flashier, but underneath, everyone I've played it with so far has been like, this is... Everyone has been surprised. Everyone has been like, this is way better than I thought. And I'm like, yeah. I mean... That is a real damning indictment on the production quality, isn't it? That rather than people sit down to play something and they're like, this is going to be awesome, but they always come away being, oh, I thought that would be rubbish, but it was nice. Yeah, it's. I feel evil and bad saying that, but that's. I'm sorry, that's been the reaction of, of everyone. It's been like... If uh, you know anything about the Underdark, Paul, it's a uh, world of like cutthroat brutality and evil, so obviously don't like pussyfoot around this... Meow. This... Meow. I'll tell you what card game I'm not thinking about anymore. <laughs> Unlike you and Tyrants of the Underdark. Um, do you remember, uh, ooh, maybe this time last year or something, I played the Pokemon card game to prove that I was still young um, and <laughs> gave some thoughts on that. Well, this month I played the new, new oh, yeah. Final Fantasy trading card game. Wow. It's not very good. Oh, really? Um, I, you know what, man? It's annoying because I think I played it pretty much exactly after the last podcast. It was four weeks ago. I'm struggling to come up with anything that was interesting about it you know the one point i'd make is that if you play final fantasy games um it is kind of surreal to flick through the booster packs it's actually really surreal and fun i suppose because they have drawn from such far corners of the final fantasy verse of all the different games as well um and one cool thing is that rather than having like kinds of deck like you know in magic the gathering you have like a uh, a plains deck or a water deck yeah uh, Final Fantasy decks are themed around uh, different Final Fantasy games. So if you are really into like Final Fantasy 7 or 6, well, you can't do 6 because they haven't released that yet because they're idiots. But if you're into like <laughs> 7 or 10, then you can just get all the 7 and 10 cards and build a Final Fantasy 10 deck and all the characters synergize because they're best friends. Oh, because they're completely separate like universes, aren't they? They don't have, there's no yeah. recurring plot that goes between them. No, so it's kind of like Marvel versus Capcom where, you know, it's like a crossing of worlds. But I had a really fun time looking through the cards for it as someone who's played an awful lot of Final Fantasy because even I was looking at these cards going, who, who, who is this person? As if opening a booster pack is like looking into your own dreams or something because it's all these half-remembered characters. Oh, wow. Uh, and there's no flavor text, so you're given a piece of art, and it's like, and a name. Like, do you remember this person? Like, a better analogy might be you're walking around a party and you remember no one's name, um, but you then use everyone at that party to beat up everyone at another party that's I, happening down the it's street. It's making me think of like flicking through yearbooks and things. It, that is an even better analogy. I just remembered the um, best mechanic in it. Um, and then we can move on because it's not that interesting. Okay. Um, but uh, you essentially lose after you're, you have been hit by like seven times. So you can put uh, characters out and those characters can attack. And if your opponent cannot block, then they take a hit. It's like like Magic the Gathering, but rather than 20 hit points, you have seven. Um, but the cool thing is that this is symbolized every time you take a hit by you take a card from your deck and flip it over into a stack, which is like your damage stack. But, Paul, some of the cards you can build your decks with have little abilities. I forget the name of it, like Flare or something. And if you flip over a Flare card as the card to symbolize that you've taken damage, if that's a spell or something, it just casts. So some of the cards in your deck, when you get hit, might have a chance to just trigger. Um, and you can build your deck to have more or less of these cards. Oh, um, sort of which reactionary. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, you do damage to me. But, oh, I got really lucky and I flipped that card, which has the flare ability. That's not what it's called, everybody at home. Um, but, uh, yeah, I thought it was really neat to uh, th- to turn something re- traditionally really negative of me taking damage into a pull of a slot machine. And maybe, just maybe, I get a really cool ability off you hurting me. Are, there's a, are there not a couple of cards in Netrunner that do that, potentially? Uh, yeah, mm. but it, it's, not a, it's not a dedicated mechanic. Oh, um, fair enough. Uh, it's not, yeah. I mean, Netrunner has, at this point, everything. It's got, like, the card pool just passed, I think, a 1,000 cards. Wow. Um, so, oh, my God. Yeah. How are you even going to retain all of that in your head? Well, I'm not right now because I'm not playing Netrunner. But you'd be surprised, actually, um, how easy it is, partially because, you know, 500 of those 1,000 cards you'd never need to play with. 
I I want to keep motoring because my god, we have so many games to talk about. So okay. Uh, okay. Lastly, as our roundup for the month, you have had a crack at Spyfall Two. I have had a crack at Spyfall Two, which is and in the the in the document where we write our podcast notes, you've written brackets mostly Spyfall again. So that's a surprise. It it is, but I'm I'm completely okay with that. It sort of works as a standalone game or an expansion. It gives you a bunch of new locations. Um, many of which it's almost as if they've tried to be even more difficult this time around, which I 100% endorse. You have things like an old folks' home and a prison. Ooh, okay, so stuff that stands out more immediately as unusual? Uh, uh, more unusual, but also uh, there's still there's things like a jazz club and rock concert and things where there's clearly crossover where you could think that you're in one and you're actually in the other, which makes, uh, you know, there's plenty of room still for confusion, but there's... There's a kind of a sense of oddness as well in a few of the places. Um, and it also adds a second spy. And you can actually play the second spy two different ways. They, oh, really? Yeah, they, they suggest. Uh, sort of the main thing is basically you are two competing spies and one of you is trying to guess the place before the other. Or you can play as a team game and do the sort of the resistance Avalon kind of thing of everyone closes their eyes and then the spies open their eyes, and they know who each other are, and they can... Um, oh, they can protect each other. Yeah, they can try and sort of deflect, or, you know, they can oh, that's co-guess. Great. And that's quite... They recommend, I think, minimum six people if you want to have two spies, although I'd say more like seven or eight at that point. And oh, that once, muddies the water so much. It does, and I think once you get past sort of eight or nine, they pretty much say you should have two spies because it goes up to twelve, I believe, which is quite oh, wow. a lot of people around. Oh, the that's table. that's significantly more than the first by four, which had like eight player max. Is I think that it was right? eight or ten. I, oh God, this is how I this is how I old just, I am. I love that. So you're going to have like two people who you know, for example, know that you're at a rock concert. But both of them, like if one of them accuses the other, then the rest of the table might assume that they're the... Or like if if two players who aren't spies start protecting each other because they're not spies, then they just look like two colluding spies, right? Well, this is it. You have to, um, you have to tread carefully because if all you need is for one of the spies to be caught and it's all over. So you, if you want to sort of deflect things in that direction, it gets... You know, it gets risky. You're treading on thin ice because you could throw everything, throw everything under the bus. But I, I don't know. I like it. I think it works really nicely. I like the fact that you've got sort of comedy locations like uh, you've got a wedding or a cat show or a candy factory, and they oh, also man. they all feel a bit sillier. Or a lot of them feel a bit sillier than the some of the locations in the first game, which you know was nevertheless silly. But I, I drew like cat show and I drew the role of cat, which was brilliant. You know, that was so much fun. I had no idea that was in the game. And then I had to answer my questions in the style of a cat, which really confused the spy because obviously. <laughs> oh, really? They didn't just guess immediately? Nope. They had no idea what was going on because they're I like, just, oh, we're in a prison and that guy's a snitch. So he's being quiet. I'm trying to remember what happened. But somebody asked me a question like, um you know, what's on your mind right now? And I just said something like, where's the string? And then I, I turned to the person who I didn't know was the spy and I just went, where's the string? And that was my question. <laughs> and they were so befuddled. Same for like, I was a spy in a cemetery and I was never going to get it. <laughs> and like everybody was was sad and upset. And I, for some reason, I think I thought we were at a rock concert or something because someone <laughs> mentioned something about something gothic. No, I thought we were at an art museum. Um, oh, okay. yeah! Like the architecture was gothic, Some, or like something was gothic. Yeah, yeah. And, the, and so I just <laughs> went in the in the in the art museum direction of like, isn't this exciting? Because somebody was bored and said this isn't very interesting, and I was like, clearly they are a person who works there who doesn't appreciate art. Whereas I'm going to pretend I'm an artist. <laughs> <laughs> so I was very buoyant and like very excited to be where I was and very motivated but, and ready to make a lot of money. <laughs> That is, oh God, yes. that is the absolute best play in Spyfall is when you have a spy who's like 80% sure where you are and thinks like, I'll be rumbled unless I act confident. So if the spy is pretty sure you're on, you know, like a space station then the spy just plays that 100%. Yep. And, and then everyone just assumes they're a really weird school kid or something. It, it worked. It worked for about half the game till I got caught because I had so much enthusiasm. 
that everyone's like, that can't possibly be a spy. Why would a spy be that? Why? Mm. I would have assumed that the most interesting thing about this game was the second spy, but actually I think these funny locations are really making me want to try Spyfall 2 because if a spy um, flips their card, or like at the end of a round when the spy says wherever they think they are, mm-hmm. that's kind of like a bit of a flat moment as everyone's like, oh, you were wrong or you were right. But there's no real laughter there, which isn't great in a game that's all about fun and laughter. But if a spy is like, we're in a you know an art gallery and you're in a graveyard, that's funny. I think the funny locations will give the very end of a round like a bit of a finale, right? I think so. I think it adds adds something extra to it. And what you, obviously what you can do is combine both copies as well. I don't know if that would be too much or maybe overstimulating, but maybe for for people who really enjoyed the original i think this is definitely something to check out and then it's a case of maybe grabbing your favorites from the first game and then some of the silliest ones from this game and you would have ultimate spyfall at that point yeah i wonder though if it's a bit like um dead of winter the long night where at this point i just recommend getting the long night because it's a more generous box um and you don't necessarily need like if you're if you're new to spyfall maybe just get spyfall too oh, um, i think it it might be a bit tricky well that's just probably what I could see us recommending. No, I think I think that's not bad advice. Actually, I think out of the two, this is definitely the one to grab to get. Oh yeah, sorry. I thought that sentence was. <laughs> I thought you were gonna keep going. No, nope, uh, that's it. it <laughs> sorry, it's uh, it, it's fine. It's our fiftieth podcast, <gasps> and the, you know what the number five means is that we should do our top five games of twenty sixteen. Okay. And then also we get to have a bit of democracy because on the Shut Up and Sit Down forums, our community voted for their top 10 games of 2016, their top five expansions, their top five re-releases and stuff. They're just um, more dedicated so than we are. They are look, uh, surprising no one. They are more dedicated. And actually, like, even the voting procedure was super professional. Um, if you haven't been to our forums, they are full of absolutely lovely people. Do check them out. There's a big button on shutupandsitdown.com. There is. I've been looking at the... People don't know. I, I ghost the forums a lot and I've been watching the selfie thread for a while. Oh, okay. Yeah. Specifically the selfie thread. Yeah, I, I only uh, discovered it like about a t- two weeks ago or something, and it, it goes all the way back to April, I think. Mm. Very interesting. <laughs> I, Either seeing what people look like or seeing people's certain people's attempts to just hide what they look like by posting like South Park characters of themselves. Okay, sure. Very I do think it's... I do think this is slightly creepy, man. You know, just, I'm just ghosting them, only it, reading this. Uh, it's fine. I'm sure that was a lot of politicians' they excuse. Kn- they know what I look like already. Do they, and though? where I live. I mean, they don't know the millions of dollars we spend on CG for you. Everyone knows where I live now, because my address is at the bottom of the donor newsletter. So, like, I keep expecting, you know, presents or weirdos That's or murderers. Right. Um, well, apparently it was a legal thing, according to MailChimp, and apparently it's not. I don't have to have to do it, but I did it, and now it's out there. So, wow. <laughs> if I ever, well, it's fine because it's fine. Paul, do you want to do your top five first, or shall I? Should we flip a coin? Uh, a coin right no, I'll, d- I'll dive right in. Here I go. Are you ready? Oh Sit snap! Down, okay, wait, 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 wait. No, we no. Could, here we go. <laughs> what if we ripped off the Dice Towers top five style, and then if there's a game that's on both of our lists? Then, Ooh. like we both do our number five, then we both do our number four. I think that's the they've they've nailed that formula. I think we should do that. Okay, all right, fine. But I don't know if you are still listening to the dice tower. But if if the same game is on both of our lists, but higher up on one of our lists, then we just say like we don't talk about it. Then we talk about it later. <laughs> can you? The dice tower can do this. I'm, I'd, I'd like to think that we're also capable of doing this. Ah, okay, all right. It's interesting because our lists are more different than I expected. Yeah, there well, is a game now, missing from your list that I'm really surprised by. Oh yeah, I think I know which one it is as well. I um, think you do. Okay, let's stop teasing people. <laughs> uh, Paul, what's your number five game? My number five game is Go Cuckoo. Great choice. Great which choice. I'm way more excited about than I should be, but it's I've played it with everybody that I can, and I'm gonna probably like a few. There's a few friends here I haven't yet played it with, and I will. I'm just gonna. <laughs> Probably like a lot of the people who I fence with play board games, and I think I'm just going to take it to my fencing school, like arrive half an hour early and make people play it. At this that point, I just want everyone to make a solid. Nest. Uh, we should probably give like super brief descriptions because I'd imagine that people, if they're following Shut Up and Sit Down, know these games. But in case they don't, Paul, what I, is Go Cuckoo? I'm offended if you don't know what Go Cuckoo is because it's I am as nothing well, man. more 
than, it's disgusting. Than a nest building game. It's almost like reverse Kaplunk. You have these wooden sticks that you gradually make <laughs> a nest Very modern with. reference there, Paul. I'm a very modern man. That you gradually make a nest with. Um, all comes in a can, so you have to make a nest over the can. Gradually laying down these wooden sticks, uh, one by one, forming a sort of a rough nest structure, and then sooner or later you'll have to plop an egg on that nest. Everyone's got a bunch of plastic eggs. Plop that down on the... Um, Hopefully ever-growing, ever-more-stable nest as you put more wooden sticks in there, except as you put more eggs on top of other eggs, there's a chance that the eggs will fall down and they might fall into the nest or they might fall out of the nest and roll off and then you have to take the eggs back. And ideally, if you're really good at putting eggs down, then you put down all your eggs and then you put the little uh, wooden figure on top of it. The wooden cuckoo. Yeah, which is Who has a name in the manual, doesn't she? Yes. It's like Tracy Cuckoo or something. The famous Tracy Cuckoo. What's your number five? Oh, wait. I wanted to make a point about Go Cuckoo, which is that fittingly for a game about balancing things on things, it actually has a really great balancing mechanic. Where if you build a good nest and then you start putting eggs on it, eggs are the opposite of a thing you ever want to put a thing on. Like, So if the top layer of your nest is covered with eggs, I mean, they are like rounded, awkward, wobbly objects, which means it's... like. If you do end up building a good nest, you're going to make it terrible because, you know, there's no way you can fit 15 eggs onto a nest of any quality. This is very true. And putting, I think the first time we played where we suddenly discovered, oh, we have to put this figure on top at the end, that was just, that was horrific. Oh, yeah. It is the hardest part. (laughs) The bird alighting and landing. My number five game is... Uh, mechs versus minions um, which is kind of controversial because as people know I um, did some consultancy on this game but this is uh, Riot Games' box um, which is by far and away the most generous board game uh, in the world in terms of components to cost Um, I have not dabbled as much in its it's a campaign game. You all play. It's. Uh, <laughs> I'm doing this in like the opposite order I should be. It's a campaign game set in Wright's uh, League of Legends universe, but it's nothing to do with League of Legends. You all are essentially piloting little mechs, um, and uh, what starts as you all going to school to learn how to drive these mechs rapidly becomes you using the mechs to uh, escape, you know, walls of lava to do uh, to battle. Uh, monster generators that have gone haywire all this stuff and the game evolves as campaign games do it's kind of like a legacy game where you're constantly unwrapping dossiers and packets and new yeah. components and boxes um the components are so nice it's wonderful pre-painted models the game is rock solid and uh like i say this game could have come in at 200 but it doesn't it comes in at like 100 something dollars it's and the shipping is so low um and riot games and their messaging for this game called it like a gift to the board game community and that is 100% what it is I've never seen like it's just a level of attention to detail from a player coming in who doesn't even work in board games and then just pouring so much money and expertise into this project it is an astonishing box um, the first and second print runs have both sold out yeah, now they have. Um, so it's not the most useful recommendation but I'm sure they're going to be they've manufactured more more are coming next year and uh, you know do hang out with Riot's like mailing list or whatever find out when they've got a copy coming if you're at all interested because it's so good it's just a wonderful treat for the board game community but also you listening to this you might well want it it's great and the only reason it's not higher up on my list is because I haven't had as much time to play it as I'd like and also because I consulted so it's kind of a it's a problem um but pip did a review for shut up and sit down so google shut up and sit down mechs versus minions if you would like to read her exhaustive review yeah it's a very good review as well and you know what um i don't think that's you know you can still enjoy it and say that you liked it and explain why but i i have heard so many people saying they are impressed with how much stuff you get in the box for the money considering how board gaming can sometimes be an expensive hobby they really they pulled out all the stops and did a really good job with that yeah, it's not a cheap game, but um, if you are going to spend, you know, like money on a game, like we are, we have a bit of coverage of Kingdom Death Monster coming very soon. Oh yeah, um, board game, board gaming's uh, most uh, ridiculous and overblown game. Um, Max versus Minions actually comes in a box of the same size, that, and it's full of as many components, but it is, I think, less than half the price. Um, so something to consider if you're running up yeah. Kingdom Death Kickstarter but can't really justify it. Which is funny um, because, because it, it feels like there's a lot in Kingdom Death. They're not stingy. No, they're not. Um, but Mechs vs. Minions, like, it, it's... Uh, 
<laughs> yeah, they um, when they first showed me the finished box, uh, they made me unbox it, and I was just genuinely blown away. Like, I, I wasn't putting it on, I was floored. And then they were just grinning ear to ear as they asked me how much I'd pay for it, and I gave a number that was more than twice what they're selling it for. Wow. Um, yeah, it was, uh, it was a hell of a thing. Um, and yeah, we'll be... Uh, we're talking about it more in years to come for reasons that we can't reveal yet. <gasps> hey, Paul, what is your number four? Number four, uh, both number five and four surprise me a bit. It's Junk Art, which is another dexterity game, a game about building structures out of all kinds of disparate bits of wood that don't really fit together very well, like cylinders and kind of half balls and big, long, rickety sticks. And... This is the kind of thing that I would play. Usually, like, I would play this game and I would enjoy something like that. If somebody says, this is a game about, like, stacking objects on on top of other things, I'd be like, sure, that'd be fun. But Junk Art has so much... um, That's a word I'm looking for. They find so many ways to make a game out of stacking things on top of other things, whether it's, like, this game mode is just taking turns or it's passing the pieces to other people that they have to use or it's timed or you're all building simultaneously until one of you screws up. And that suddenly adds so much more to it. And if you are going to, like, really invest in dexterity games or, you know, do dexterity games to the max... This is how to do it. And I, I really enjoyed seeing how many different game modes there were. Like, there's one sort of circular one where you, you build and then you, you just change places and you take over somebody else's structure. And they have to take over yours. So ideally, you want to build something that's not in great condition because when someone takes over, tries to add But then to it, obviously, I can only imagine the disaster awaiting if you're trying to build something wobbly. Yeah, you know? yep. And it's like it, they've done such a good job of finding uh, ridiculous ways to, to play, you know, to build upon the idea of a game where you just stick stuff on top of other stuff. And I had a really good time with it this year. We played it uh, at Gen Con. I brought a copy back with me. I played it with a bunch of friends. Everybody was impressed and was like, oh, there's so much more to this than I first thought. So that's, yeah, definitely one of my games of the year. It also means that um, Pretzel Games, uh, ooh, I wonder if Flick'em Up came out this year. That's something I didn't consider for my list. Um, Pretzel Games, uh, a new studio that made uh, Flick'em Up uh, and then Junk Art, both of which are um, great games you could buy. Um, they're really high-quality wooden games. They're both yeah. really fun. It also means that Pretzel Games is two for two, um, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, wow. Which is a 100% success ratio, uh, which is very rare. Um, it's not something that Space Cowboys were able to maintain with Shut Up and Sit Down, um, which was a new studio that put out, ooh, they started with something really good, Splendor, but then they put out a couple of games we were less impressed by. So Pretzel Games, keep on keeping on. Okay. That is the official Shut Up and Sit Down message. Uh, my number three Rawr. is higher up on... I get to say what they say on uh, the <laughs> Dice Tower now. Uh, my number three is higher up on Paul's list. So let, we'll be seeing what is in that box. But you're number four, later. first of all. You're number four. Oh my god, I skipped my number four. Yeah, that's why I, I was oh, making a growling noise. It's it's harder than Tom Vassell makes it look. <laughs> um, my number four is Conan, the ridiculous giant overblown miniatures game that uh, <laughs> you're aware of the system, Paul, where um, I have a limited amount of space in my living room. So if I want to put a board game in my collection, I have to take one out. Yep. Um, so because <clears throat> I got uh, Conan and then I also managed to locate um, the Kickstarter miniatures, I bought them separately. So I have two giant boxes of Conan. I like this game so much and realized I had to put it on my list because I had to get rid of, I think, five different board games in my collection to make room for all the Conan stuff. Wow. It was a hell of a commitment. Um, but it's just really good. It's like drink a beer, kill a tentacle creature. <laughs> Throw your sword 100 meters to kill the boss. It's really good. I do. Really good. I love the stamina system. Yeah, this is it. This is the... I mean, there is a bunch of stuff in it that's good. I think that the miniatures are good. I like the way the GM has this sort of deck of, um, uh, you know, all the monsters and how they control them and how they sort of rotate them. But the, the, the whole stamina system, just the gems and just like, you have this much, you can do this much. You've been injured. You can still do other things, but, you know, do you... Are you going to hit something very hard this turn or are you going to run off? Are you going to hit it gently and then do a bit of running off? And it's, it gives you good decisions to make all the time and it works. 
Yeah, there aren't enough scenarios in the box, which we complained about in our review. <clears throat> but um, the scenarios it does have are really quite well balanced for the most part. And I've had a couple of really great slugfests where it's ended with Conan exhausted. One of his friends is dead. Uh, he's thrown <laughs> his good weapon, so he's using a rubbish one that he's picked up a corpse. And uh, just Conan and the GM just scrabbling to complete the last bit of their objective um, when they're both like just utterly uh, tuckered out, as, as we'd say in uh, England um, it's good it's not a perfect game it's got problems but it is a triumph of um, doing something really dumb in a really smart way yeah and there's nothing and wrong I with guess that. moving on my number three is higher up on Paul's list so we'll cover that in a bit Paul your number three right this is what I'm surprised that you didn't put down Captain Sonar mm-hmm which uh, yes is, is submarine team game you put you put your wonderful submarine screen in the middle of the table half of your friends sit on one side and they're a submarine crew half of your friends sit on the other side they're a submarine crew and then between you you've got the captain like going go this way and the engineer going okay we can't go that way because this thing's broken and then you know surface so we can repair everything and the weapons officer being like I think that I we we could we've got a torpedo loaded have we can we fire over here and then the sonar off officer trying to listen to the other team on the other side being like i think they're over here i think they just went around this island what a gorgeous mechanic to have one player whose role it is to listen to the other team and then work out the puzzle where they are man it's great i loved uh learning it i loved playing it i loved reviewing it god how rare is it that we get to review a game that's completely different um yeah like that and explore so many ideas and just tell people about it captain son has one of the videos that did the best traffic this year and that delights me because it was just us taking a great idea and putting it in front of people and people responding really well yeah it's not on my list though and the reason for that is i became aware this year that real-time games while i like I'm, I'm really excited about the concept i love playing them at conventions i love reviewing them i just tend not to get them to the table very much this year um i think like the board game group i have now while they are really great um uh I, and i'm including myself in that um we just play <laughs> new stuff all the time and it's kind of draining, not like in a long-term way. Like I've got people coming over as soon as we're finished recording this podcast. And, but because we've been doing this all year, before we wrap up for Christmas, I'm probably just going to, like we're just going to play some light card games. We're going to play like uh, Archaeology or um, uh, a Deception Murder in Hong Kong, or like which we'll talk about in 2017, by Ooh. the way. Um, you know, like real-time games are such a massive investment of emotion and energy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's not that Captain Sonar is any less than an awesome game, and I stand by that review 100%. It's just that because of how I live my life and the board game group I have right now, where routinely my friends come over and I'm like, okay, sit down, I'm going to spend half an hour teaching you how to play like Vinhos or Great Western Trial, which is another game we're going to talk about next year. Um, we're just tired, man. We just The last thing my friends want is to commute over here and me be like, right, who wants to you know run around and get excited? Um, I think that's but- valid, though. I think that's 100% valid. Yeah, I mean, all this stuff changes. Like, we were talking this year a bit about how last year we were all about the big boxes, and the year before that we were about the huge experiences. But in 2016, I got really into small box card games. These things all happen on cycles, you know? I'm sure uh, next year I'll be like, I'll have a different group. Some people will leave, some people will join, and then we'll be really up for, like, high-energy stuff. But the thing is, it's completely valid. I can can 100% relate to that, really. And there have been so many times where... I mean, it worked well for us to play at a lot at Gen Con, for example, because we always had a supply of people around. We always had people who were interested. And I think what it will become for me, um, like there's not very many copies floating around in Canada, but a friend of mine has it. And I think it's going to become like uh, a special occasion game that you just break out. Like if you're having a very long uh, weekend of gaming or holiday gaming or things like this, it'll be one of the things that gets to the table at that point. And I, I think yeah. that's fine. That's still perfectly, perfectly valid. Completely. One of my friends actually wants, uh, he's been talking about this for a while now, but he wants to do a two rooms and a boom party where Ooh. I come over and I, and I GM it for them, but he wants to do it with his friends and he wants to do it like uh, suits and dresses, uh, dress code. Oh. And he's going to do like incredibly fancy cocktails. And so it does, like his flat is transformed into like an actual ambassador's like ball, which is kind of very thinly where two rooms and a boom is set since the president is there, I guess. Um, 
and then you know sort of like play you know five six games of two rooms in a boom with all the different mechanics and stuff um i can and like we we did that day for um operation overlord where we all dressed in like army fatigues yeah and that was great <laughs> i can definitely see myself next year like doing a captain sonar day of like eight people and then like some really really light dressing up uh hats. and some rum just hats and hats. hats and rum I'll tell you what, I watched Das Boot uh, a couple of weeks ago. If ever there was an opposite to Captain Sonar, it is... Have you seen that movie? I Yeah, I remember. When I was like a teenager, they showed it, uh, they serialised it on BBC Two. And I really liked it then. And then I, it was like one of the first DVDs I bought, I think, when I got DVD pack. Because there's like a full <laughs> six That's hour... That's you, the fun-loving teen, Paul Dean. Well, I was a bit older. I was like a fun-loving 20-year-old or something. But I... Um, they did a full like uh there's the full version I think is like six or six and a half hours or something. So it is that right or am I just talking nonsense? No, that's that's correct. Um that's the full full version. I ended up buying the there's like a cut that's in between, like a four hour, four and a half hour film. That's wow. the one we watched. Um it, mm, it's uh I, li- I like it. I think it's really good. And the end, without spoiling it, the end is oh appropriately a God. war ending to a war film. You know, it they have a really like, tough time all the time, which is how you should depict war, I think. That's why I think it's such a great war movie. And again, we're not going to spoil it. We're just going to tell you to watch Das Boot. But the thing I love about it is that so many um, Hollywood sort of action films um, or war films are about war, but they have the structure of a uh, movie. You know, whether there's like a three-act structure and then there's a big dramatic peak towards the end, you know, Star Wars style. Yeah. But um, what Das Boot does and what good war movies do is like the action comes at the wrong spot. Like, it is horrific, uh, either too early or too late in the structure. It is boring, but in a fun way, you know, when you don't expect it. And then the ending is, like, just... When me and my friends finished watching it, none of us said anything. Our mouths were just open for like <laughs> sixty seconds. Oh, it's yeah, it's got some some uppers and downs, and just things like bad weather. They just have a horrible time in bad weather, or like they have the political officer on board who's like really stoked about being a Nazi, and they're like, "We just want to go home. <laughs> we just want to get this over, go home, and see people." And he's like, "You know, isn't it great? Isn't Germany great?" It's like, I just want to have like some hot food at home. Oh man, I could talk about Das. I could do a Das Boot podcast with you, but uh, we should we should keep going because I've got I've got one eye on my runtime here. Fine. Um, so number two, uh, our number two get our number two games have something in common, Paul. Do they? They're each big. Yeah. They're each complicated. Well, they're not. Well, they're each big. They're each very tough, and they're each about food yeah <laughs> because mine mine is food chain magnate which we record i don't even know if this technically came out this year but certainly the the wave of the printing wave i got involved was this year food chain magnate just took the top of my head off right at the beginning of the year um by being a complicated uh, game of really just hiring and managing staff and uh creating demand for beer and burgers and pizza um, in a small town and competing with your friends to then fulfill that demand. Yeah. So someone has to advertise. And then if you advertise, then that's take, taking like energy from your engine that someone else can then just pour into like having all the food all the time. You can slash prices. Uh, it's just a complete delight. And it's not even that complicated. It's just so unlike anything I've ever played. And it's so interesting and it is so funny as well. Like, you can have just a Ponzi scheme of waitresses versus a company that has just poured everything <laughs> into making every single person in the town want beer. I think, like, the the very end of the marketing, like, uh, the, the highest quality marketing you can get is radio, mm-hmm. at which point you're just pumping... Because it's set in the 40s, right? I just imagine this sort of, like... Hello, everybody. Have you tried beer? Please buy beer. <laughs> Available now, down the street. Buy a beer. And then, but, you know, there's no, like, actual content on that radio station. It's just them telling you to buy beer all the time, like sort of BBC World Service of buying beer. What's and then that noise, Peter? <laughs> That's the noise of beer. It's a delicious beer. Paul, have you had beer today? I haven't. Well, you should get yourself down to Quintin's Beer Emporium. Holders of... It's just great. It's really great. Uh, I haven't tried Feast of Odin yet, which is your number two. Is it? Is it all about food and feasts? I hope it is. I First of all, I've been doing this constantly. So it is called A Feast for Odin. I am never... I've typed... Like in the document we put together for the podcast, I've typoed the name wrong. I am constantly getting the name wrong. It says on the box right in front of me. It's on the table next to me right now. It says... <laughs> 
a feast for Odin. I am going to call it Feast of Odin until I die. Wow. Like this is, I can't believe I'm getting it wrong. I really like this. I've been very lucky to get a, a rare copy because most of them are sort of sold out at the moment. And I think there's a new print run coming from Z-Man. Um, I played it at BGG Con. It was probably my favorite game of the con. I've now got a copy here. Um, I'm really stoked about it. I This year, I feel like I have been playing a lot of lighter games and reviewing lighter games and being more excited about party games. And, you know, I, I've done reviews of, like, Crossing and Go Cuckoo and things, and I've been constantly excited about getting stuff to the table that doesn't take as long to play and is a bit simpler. And I thought maybe my tastes are just changing. Maybe I don't want to play larger Euro-type games anymore. And this like reset my metrics and i know that i still like games like that as well it's not too complicated but there's lots of choices you've got this this viking homestead you're trying to feed all your people and you're trying to collect resources and make things like furs and weapons um and you gradually want to just fill up your sorry did you just say it's not too complicated it's sort of not i feel it's got Isn't a this lo- basically sorry didn't you tell me that this is a worker placement game with 66 places for your workers yes but wait hang on hang on wait so it's it's broad but shallow is how i feel like there's a lot of things you can do in the game there's lots of different items but i feel a lot of stuff uh, makes sense in a way that's very simple. Like all the mm. w- the worker placement choices are like, um, I feel like the way the board looks gives you a pretty good uh, visual indication of what's going to happen. And occasionally you have to look stuff up in the appendix. But I feel like the, the time it takes for you to understand the things in the game and how they work is quite low and things are visually represented quite well. Um, there's lots of tokens that you put on top of things which covers them up, which is like your way of saying like, that resource has been satisfied or those people have been fed. And that sort of visual representation works really well. But, yeah, there's a lot going on. None of it's too complicated. I like all the possibilities in it. I like all the different things that are going on. And I like the idea. I like the idea of having Vikings who who are constantly hungry and you harvest and you feed them and you give them furs and then they go off and they plunder an island or they settle somewhere new. They settle like distant Canada or something, and then that becomes one of your colonies. Or Iceland, you can settle Iceland and then just fill it up with like food and furs and things. And yeah, this is the thing, right? It's like an incredibly complicated, uh, well, not complicated, broad but shallow um, sort of strategy game. But a lot of what you're doing involves picking up these um, uh, square shapes. I've been told off for calling them tetrominoes because apparently tetrominoes all have four blocks, oh, right, which is where yes. the tet in Tetris comes from. More you know. Anyway, um, but you have all these wiggly grid shapes and then you have to fit them onto grids. Yeah, and the th- the, the, ideally you cover up as much stuff as you can because things like your basic homestead on your player board is full of spaces that just have minus one written on them, which looks really intimidating because <laughs> that means at the end of the game you lose a point for each one of those spaces that's uh, still uncovered. But, mm. you know, it's not a horribly <laughs> punishing game. You... The way it leads you in and the way it gives you things to do, it's unlike Agricola where you can make terrible choices and just be like, oh, I've got no food, I've got nothing, I've ended the game with like no vegetables. And <laughs> it, it's not as punishing. It's still difficult to do well and it, you, know, you need to practice to get good at it, but it doesn't completely kick you into the mud and then tread on your head the way that Agricola does. And I like that as well. I found it more forgiving and I okay. think it's a better... It's it's less intimidating than people might feel for the size, so I'm I'm pretty pumped about it. It's another thing that I think I'd like to actually do a full length video on and talk about. In oh, depth. you a- absolutely should. So uh, for you, talking about Uwe Rosenberg's games, mm-hmm. of which this is one, um, do you prefer Agricola or Caverna? I think I prefer I prefer Caverna to Agricola, and I think I prefer A Feast for Odin to Caverna. I think it's trumped. Ooh. It has trumped the the trumper. I wonder if I've gone back. At the end of our initial review, we said um, uh, that, uh, well, actually, you know what? We could roll to this now. Paul, what's your number one game? Um, It's your number three, which is Inish. Inish. Yeah. What is in this box? It is in this. Since finding out it's pronounced Inish, that ruins the joke we had in that video. Like, what is in this box? It is in this. 
I love that joke. It's true. But um, at the end of our Innis review, Kazinis um, was from Matago, who made other uh, sort of mythological strategy games like Kemet and Cyclades. Both very good. And yeah, I mean, at the end of our Innis, Innis oh, God damn it, review, <laughs> we said that uh, maybe Innis was better than Cyclades. I don't know if now the newness of Innis has faded. I don't know if I feel that way, but I certainly think it's difficult to pick a favourite out of Innis and Cyclades. I, I think that's valid. I think out of me, it's what I like the most. I played it again relatively recently because I brought a copy back from BGGCon. Nice. Um, and we, we played a, a four-person thing of it. And it was, I get this a lot with board games where it's, haven't played it for a while, could not remember how half of it worked. And then there was this brief period of going over that speed bump and it's like, oh, I remember everything. All oh, right, I need to be doing this. And everyone who was new to it just, you know, picked it up in the same period of time. And it, it very quickly became a thing where, like, we all knew what we needed to do very clear uh, visually from the board where, you know, who is doing well right now, who needs to do certain things, passing those cards around, deciding what to give people and deny people. We just... Within half an hour, we were just into it and having such a good time and making so many difficult decisions and being Celtic jerks to each other over and over again. It's like there's so... Just like Cyclades, the thing it has in common, even though Cyclades is like an auction game about island hopping and Inish is a drafting game about killing Irishmen and putting them in a thicket. Um, (laughs) It's like, what do you do in Inish? You draft cards, but the drafting phase is really small. You get to draft like three cards... And that is such a tough choice. And then when you play those cards, that is a tough choice. And which regions do you play those cards on? That's a tough choice. If, like we always say, a good board game is a series of difficult decisions. Inish is nothing but difficult decisions, Constantly. but also beautiful art. Every single choice you make is is horrible. And then somebody attacks you and you're like, I can't win this unless I burn one of my <laughs> cards. At which point, actually, it's fine. But I had other plans, and then all they've done is they've weakened both of us, and now the other two players are getting ahead. And can we, can we say, just not fight this turn, please? I know. My, I think uh, having some distance, and this doesn't change how I feel about the game necessarily, but I think my least favorite part of the game might be the end, where you've got like two or three or four players staring at the board going, oh, I'm so close to winning, how can I win? And you're looking at the cards in your hand on the board, and it's like a Sudoku. Like, you know those... Um, the puzzles, the chess puzzles you get in the newspapers where it's like, if yeah. such and such is here, how can you win? And you're looking at your cards because you swear there is a play there that will win you the game. Um, and I feel that that is marginally less satisfying for me than getting to the end and being like, I can't win because I screwed this up. I mean, I still will know things I've screwed up, but the fact that Inish makes victory so tantalizingly close is actually like almost frustrating to me. Fair enough. Um, I mean, not, that's not a huge flaw. It's just uh, sort of like an observation. Ah, that's um, fine. One thing, one thing keeping it um, from my number one slot. My number one, da, da, a fine da. choice of number one, by uh-huh. the way. Yeah. So I posted my number one in the Slack, and then you and Matt were both like, "What? What? What?" I just looked <laughs> um, at it in silence, to be honest. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> okay, so my number one, the game of 2016. It's the Arkham Horror Living Card Game from what's Fantasy Fight. I know, I know. So you and I played a quick demo game of the Arkham Horror, the new Arkham Horror card game at Gen Con. And we weren't that fussed. We weren't that fussed, like we're not fussed about Mansions of Madness 2nd Edition. You know, like all that Arkham stuff feels really like fluffy and clammy and weird to us. And it has ever since Arkham Horror, but they just keep making Arkham games and we're not that into them. We agree Eldritch Horror is better than Arkham Horror, but it's still not great. Mansions of Madness 2nd Edition is maybe better than 1st, but we didn't like that either. No. And then I played the Arkham Horror LCG with Matt in a video that just went up live on ShutUpAndSitDown.com. Yeah. It's the latest video. And we had fun. We had more fun than you and I had. And this weekend, I played the full campaign in the core set, which is mission one, and then you gain experience, and then you tweak your decks, and then you play mission two, and you gain experience, and you tweak your decks. And it is so good. I'm really surprised myself, um, overwhelmingly. Um, and I've been trying to think about how to... Obviously, obviously, I'm going to do a big review on this next year when they've got some some of the big box expansions coming out. But what you've got is... Um, the classic Arkham Horror thing of uh, that they always do where really cruel and unfair stuff happens yeah. to you, right? You work your way through a story where you draw a card and it's like, oh, God, it's this. But you also have this incredibly crunchy and satisfying living card game thing where you build your investigator deck and then you get to upgrade it between missions. And so it is almost 
50% the Arkham Horror game of wading through awful stuff happening to you. But then 50% of it is a really tactical uh, deck-building game, just like they did with, like, Netrunner, right? And it is the closest thing to how Netrunner made me feel um, that I've played since sort of wow. slowing down how much I played Netrunner this year. Yeah, like, the five different types of investigator are really interesting. The, oh, man, I've got so much to talk about. Um this one brief thing would be like the way that it deals with um, random chance rather than having dice. Mm-hmm. It has that chaos bag, you remember, which yes. you put tokens in and then you draw tokens and the tokens do different things. Um, they might be stat penalties that mean you don't or do pass a check. They might be special symbols which change depending on the mission. They might be auto fails. They might be critical hits. But that is actually a system I've not seen before and they can do quite cool stuff with it. Like for this mission, put this extra symbol in the bag or to change the difficulty of this level, just completely change what's in the bag. Or one of the deck archetypes which is the survivor investigator um, has a lot of abilities that relate to um, manipulating or changing how the bag works oh wow yeah and then once you start playing it with three people and you finish a mission you've got something that shouldn't work but does which is that it is like a, a, a role-playing game where you're discussing almost in character like well we know that the cultists are doing this what are we expecting from the next mission what do we need and you're trying to second guess the game designers but then you're also customizing your decks and trying to make them run more smoothly you're trying to work better as a team where you're like okay if you double down on like finding clues then maybe i can remove all the clue finding stuff from my deck is that too risky what if something happens to you um there is honestly paul too much for me to talk about right now so i'm going to stop myself there and just say that um the Arkham Horror Card game isn't necessarily the most fun I've had this year, but it is the game that I'm most looking forward to playing in 2017 as they start releasing expansions. It sounds like it's given you maybe the most surprises of this year as well. Yeah, it's... Like, uh, you know, it's, it's beaten your expectations. Yeah, well, I mean, if Captain Sonar and Food Chain Magnate and Inish are me sitting down to play a game and being like, oh, wow, this is a fascinating new different design, Arkham Horror is me sitting down and me playing it and going, well, this is also a fascinating and new and different design, but Fantasy Flight are releasing, they've already announced like the first three expansions for it, and I can't wait to play them because it's a fascinating new design that also is not finished being interesting. Um... And yes, expect a spoiler-free review next year. I would say that if you're on the fence about it, don't buy it now. Just wait until um, you can look at my more exhaustive opinion as to why it works and why it might work for you and your friends group, friend Ooh. groups next year. And without asking too much more or spoiling too much more, was the, the campaign side of a thing part of what um, swung your opinion that won, that won you over? Yeah, absolutely. Um, because the, the deck building... Uh, that it does is it's just not something i've done before um i think building a deck and taking it to a game is quite interesting it's what mm-hmm. got me through netrunner you know yeah. um but what the arkham lcg does with b- between missions you can um swap out cards for better cards you can upgrade them um which is just really satisfying because it allows um fantasy flight to have fun making cards that are demonstrably overpowered but that you have to spend experience points on um mm. so it's it, it's interesting because, um, I mean, if you enjoy the process of deck building, of going, oh, I think if I swap out this card and put a better card in, then that'll work better. Um, it's almost like that, but with, with pleasantly low stakes and very rewarding because you go in with a deck that probably will be shit, but you can fix that. Um, and also, not just you can fix it, but you can fix it within the context of your friend's decks. Um and uh, you can, like, if you and your friend go, you know what, you're so good with all your guns that <laughs> I don't need to kill anyone, then maybe your character, you know, sells their knives and buys some encyclopedias. And that actually almost becomes part of the story of, um, as investigators, you learn how to work together and you learn how to stick together. Um, and maybe you build your decks then between missions in a way that doesn't work. And then that becomes part of the story as well. Maybe you realize that you need to get your knives back or your machete back because um, you your friends can't look after you all the time. And that makes sense um, for a cooperative game. I mean, you should be doing... One of the best ways to do that is you all do different things rather than you just all do take turns to do the same thing or you know have the same powers. Well, exactly. Um, and... I think that's where the Lord of the Rings co-op game that Fantasy Flight made and this are really exploring interesting territory because so often any cooperative board game you care to mention is like, Paul and I are the same, but we each have a different power. 
Um, whereas the Arkham card game isn't just our decks are completely different and do different things, but also we have different weaknesses. Um, whichever investigator you pick um, comes with a special awful weakness card. Like um, uh, <laughs> if you choose to play the policeman, occasionally he draws a card where he needs to uh, remove all evidence. The card's called cover up. So it's like <laughs> you've just killed a monster and you desperately need to move to this next room. At the end of the time, you will draw a card, which is exciting. And you're, you hear your cop buddy like, oh, God damn it. You know what? Before I move on, I really need to just set fire to this corpse. Or like occasionally if you play the, the the gambler like rogue guy, he remembers he has hospital debts halfway through a mission and gets sad. Wow. Uh, it's it's fun, man. There's a lot of there's a lot of personality in the decks. It really, really it, it's honestly interesting. Um so much more interesting than I thought. And I don't think the first mission is um the best to get a taste of it. Um all the more reason to wait for my review until they've released more expansions and I can look at it sort of on mass and yeah. say like yeah this is really cool get involved in this yeah um i've witted about that for far too long no, that's let's good. quick let's quickly cover the purple's choice oh god we only have 15 minutes till my friends get here okay so okay we, we we might have to cover the mailbag and the folk game when podcast returns in special, special 50th anniversary we do this the way we want what's the, that's what i the thought purple's choice what a great name! Um, Pebbles Choice 2016, because I fully expect our forumites will be doing this again next year. Um, I think I'm going to underlay some nice, uh, nice music under this. Isn't that nice music, Paul? Oh my yes. god, it's the doorbell! <laughs> We're going to have to meet up and do another podcast just talking about the Pebbles Choice or something. Um, why don't we call this part one of our Christmas podcast? Oh my god, this is an actual cliffhanger. We've never had a podcast cliffhanger before. <laughs> I know, I'm so sorry, man. Uh, thank you all for listening, everybody. Paul, why don't you wrap up the podcast while I go and answer my door? <laughs> okay, while I laugh myself to death, I have been Paul Dean. My uh, poor, my poor colleague has been Quinton Smith, who is rushing now to the door to invite his friends in to enjoy another evening of wonderful board gaming. We will be back probably sooner than you think because we've never had unfinished business like this before. Thank you for for listening. Please don't forget to constantly check up on shutupandsitdown.com for the latest and the very best video reviews. More podcasts like this one, 49 other podcasts like this one now. Oh, my God. Wonderful written reviews, regular news, special features. We have some exciting things coming in 2017. I I know I am the person who always says something new and exciting is coming, but it's because it is. There always is. There's always other things in the pipeline. Thank you so much. Have a great holiday season. If you don't hear from us before the end of the holiday season, you might. I don't know how we're going to pick this up. I don't know how we're going to resume this. Quentin, are you are you there? No, he's he's gone. Just me now. Just he has to go down like three flights of stairs. I jokingly wrap this up. I just need to finish this up with Paul. Oh, here he is. Phew. Hello. I'm you, I'm just going to assume that that was. Did you finish? I have finished wonderfully, but I also left it hanging for like Quentin might come back to also say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back in a week or something. There we go. That'll do. A week. (laughs) Finish this cliffhanger.